According to the PwC Global Cultural Survey, 66% of C-suite and board members responded that culture is viewed as equally as or more important to organizational performance as their operating model. The survey further indicates that 85% view culture as a top leadership agenda item. Over the past 18 months, our connection has become more increasingly mobile with a global reach. Cultural competence is highly correlated to dynamically diverse and high-performing teams. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ronstadt Equity Diversity and Inclusion crew, or Ready crew, Rosa Vega-Vasquez. Today, we're speaking with the phenomenal Ricardo Gonzalez, one of the world's most renowned authors and thought leaders on diversity, equity, inclusion, and culture. Ricardo founded Bilingual America in 1992 and is the author of The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, The Cultural Transformation Manifesto, and The Twelve Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. Mr. Gonzalez also hosts the Cultural Matters podcast and is the course developer for the multiple cultural mastery courses. He is also an internationally respected expert in the fields of cultural mastery and transformation, diversity, and inclusion, Hispanic culture, and foreign language acquisition. Welcome, or bienvenidos, Ricardo. Gracias, gracias. Muchas gracias, Audra. How are you? So I just learned that you speak Spanish very well. I did not know that. So great to be here with you. Ah, sí, hablo español un poquito. No es muy bien, but it's okay. No, pero muy, muy bien. Así, <laughs> así. Excelente. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. We're just so excited to have you here to share this deep cultural expertise that you provide. And we do appreciate your time. I know you've got many, many opportunities to speak at different media outlets and events. And we appreciate you thinking of our Diversity Deep Dive podcast. I love Ronstadt and I love your work. So, oh, <laughs> here we are. Yes. Aww. Okay, so Ricardo, so tell us a little bit about your background. You know, why have you spent so much of your career educating and driving leaders to understand culture? I, I think it's just turning pain into my gain and other people's, right? My uh, mm. my father was one of 27 children, same father, from the mountains of Puerto Rico. And my mother was an orphan from the state of Kentucky. And so I I jokingly, but in Puerto Rico, the word hibaro means kind of hillbilly, and it's a term of endearment, actually, in Puerto Rico. Sometimes in the U.S., people think it's derogatory, but I, certainly for me, it's a term of endearment. So I, I actually jokingly say I'm a Puerto Rican hillbilly, and I grew up in this home, Audra, that had these two very, very different cultures, and the dynamic was very, very dysfunctional. It was very painful. There was quite a bit of conflict, not only between my parents, but between families, and for me, the work that I do and working to bring people from different cultures together is redemptive. I think that part of it, obviously, is, is just for other people. But honestly, part of it is just the joy that I feel when people who are very different from one another learn to love each other and learn to collaborate together properly and create wonderful things together. So I think it's part redemptive and part service, right? So. That's kind of where I'm coming from. I think that we can do so much better in our world. There's no need for all of the infighting among human beings. So let's see how we can continue to, to improve that situation, right? That's, for me, I think the background that really drives my work. And, you know, your work is so needed today, Ricardo. I have to say, now more than ever, I mean, we have never seen such, and maybe we have, I don't know, maybe in my lifetime I haven't seen so much 
infighting and division about everything. So thank you for your work. I know it's not an easy job, but it's definitely, you're doing the work of your humanity is what I'm going to say, because it's what we need today. Yeah, I, I love it. You know, I, I would say this, and just a, something to provoke a little thought in the listeners. Go back and study every war in history, and you'll see that every war in history is over cultural conflict. And it's a fascinating viewpoint from which to view world history. And so I don't know that we're worse off today than hundreds of years ago. It, very different, right? But we certainly have a lot of work to do, that's for sure. <laughs> So. No shortage of work, definitely. No, Rosa no, and I can no. attest to that. So thank you for that, Ricardo. Yeah. So Ricardo, moving to my next question, you know, as a DEI executive, you know, I know there's this misconception out there with organizations that, you know, if we have just one DNI person, a one HR person who has DNI as one of their requirements as a job responsibility, they can own shaping culture solely themselves. But in your book, The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, you talk about how all cultures rally around, quote unquote, common core beliefs. Can you give us an example of how those common beliefs either improve or harm diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to try to answer that on multiple angles. The diversity, equity, inclusion movement departments within our organizations have come about out of necessity. The reality is, is that if our organizations and if our communities had been led in the past by people who were culturally healthy and skilled, there would not have been the need for the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. So we're really a movement that is necessitated out of dysfunction. And so I always say to diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders, our job is to work ourselves out of a job, right? Ideally, we wouldn't be needed, but right now we are. I think that, Audra, there are a lot of leaders. You know, one of the things that I do with C-suite executives when I get to sit down with a, with a full C-suite is to ask them to define their culture, but I do it in a blind test. And so I'll give everyone a piece of paper and ask everyone in the C-suite, you know, whether it's CFO, CEO, CSO, CMO, <laughs> CDO, whatever that C-suite person may be, ask them to define their culture. And the most amazing thing happens, and this has been true every time I've ever done this, and I've done this for many years, as many people as you have, that's how many different answers you get. Mm. So what happens in the, even in the C-suite where we have top level leadership, we don't get consistency of what our culture even is. And so how do we then create a macro culture, which is attractive and which is healthy, when we're not even sure how to define that ourselves. And so I think that is one of the biggest challenges that we face. And then the idea that this should be departmental or divisional, I think is, is really actually damaging to our efforts because what we really want, and I know, you know, I know you personally, so I know what you want, is that leaders would be naturally equitable, inclusive, and wouldn't have the natural intuitive skill to create cultures where people want to belong from in all departments and divisions, right? That it would be, I think, embedded within the very DNA of our leadership, which would then 
create less need for the department. So it's kind of a catch-22. It reminds me of a, I used to be in the ministry many, many years ago, and I remember a minister saying to his congregation, he said, I'm so thankful that you people sin so much because it keeps me in a job. <laughs> you know? Wow. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting way to look at it. And so you and I, are we're working to heal people, to heal our organizations, to heal our leadership, to create culturally healthy and skilled leadership by doing so. If it truly became embedded within our organizations and within every fabric of our DNA, then we really would be out of a job. We'd be able to move somewhere else and do it again. That's amazing insights, Ricardo. I have to say, I mean, every time you you talk about this, I never get tired of hearing you speak on this topic. It's just, I feel like you are tremendously reaching out into the universe and, and hugging in every DEI leader out there who feels like they're trying to get people just to understand that fact, just understand that we all make up the culture. It's not just one department, one person, one person's job. We all impact that. And it's so wonderful to hear. It's just music to my ears. I love when you say that. So moving on to my next question, you know, your book is just, it's so powerful. And hey, my audience members, if you don't have the six stages of cultural mastery, make sure you get that at the Bilingual America website. You know, we'd love for you to read that because it is so enriching, even more than what we able to, we're able to address you on this podcast today. But it's really resonated with me and has deeply, deeply changed the way I view not only my world, but my job and global society as a whole. So please get that book. So in your book, you talk about one of the statements that really just jumped off the page at me, Ricardo, is your statement that says, quote, everyone arrives at their point of view through their own cultural framework. Can you share how you start where people are to try to transfer their views and their thinking? Yeah, this is so important. Because the first thing that, that I would say to this is that only when I fully embrace my own culture and fully understand it, can I even be in a position to embrace someone else's. And what happens is, is that, I'll give you an example. My dad's Puerto Rican, and as when I grew up, my dad did not like Mexicans. For whatever reasons my dad had, he didn't like Mexicans. So I'm there, his little prodigy, right? <laughs> and so what do you think that I grew into? I, I just had this natural belief passed to me by my father that I didn't like Mexicans, Right. It was interesting because later in my teen years, a Mexican man came into my dad's life. Actually, this is in the book. His name was Mexican Joe. And my dad began to love this guy. And I saw the shift in my father. And I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for some time, and there's a lot of Mexicans there. And I realized that I need to better engage and educate myself about Mexicans. And I really want to process through this. I, I don't want to maintain those biases that I grew up with, that I that were passed on to me, honestly. I received those honestly. I didn't ask for them. I just received them. So when I say we receive them honestly, that means that we really didn't have much say about it. We just got it, right? It was passed on to us. And so we were enculturated. And that happened honestly, whether one of the examples I use on this, and, and by the way, I did really engage a lot with the Mexican people and just learned to deeply, deeply admire and respect and love them. And still, to this day, I just have the greatest admiration for the Mexican people. So it's not permanent, <laughs> right? Uh, it doesn't have to be permanent. We can grow. We can develop. But 
one of the things that I try to do with people is I'll ask a question, for example. If we were born in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, do you know the statistical pro- – well, you probably do because you, you've read my book and you've been in the court. <laughs> but but you know, I'll just say it then, so I'm not going to ask you. The statistical probability that a person is Muslim of his Islam faith is over 99%. That's the power of culture. And we could give example after example after example how people receive their cultures honestly. We're born into the world. We're born into a certain family. We're born into a certain culture. And those beliefs are passed down to us. And we simply assume them. They become part of who we are. So now when we're Maybe we're calling out other people who are different from ourselves or we're shaming other people. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. We need to learn to cuddle people in because Mm. they got to where they were and are, honestly. And if we're going to grow together, we have to have grace for one another. And for me, learning to embrace my own culture fully, and I had two. I didn't embrace the Kentucky Southern part of me. I embraced the Puerto Rican Latino. And I had to come back in my own life and learn to love and embrace that deep South Southern culture, you know, where my grandmother, she said, now, Ricky, (laughs) you know, (laughs) now, now, Ricky, I told you not to do that, Ricky, you know, and I've got the other grandmother, pero Ricardito, ¿por qué te pasa, mi amor? You know, (laughs) so so I liked the Puerto Rican side, you know, that was the warm, fuzzy, you know, everybody was nice, dancing, having fun, music all the time. And I loved that culture. But I had rejected the Southern side of me later in life when I began to understand these principles. I had to learn to embrace that because if I didn't, I wasn't embracing myself. And so we can't embrace other cultures until we've embraced our own. And we can't give grace to other people for who they are until we know who we are. Powerful, Ricardo. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I wish we could just have that on every social media platform today. You can't give people the grace and love who you are. That's amazing. Okay, I'm going to pass it off, Ricardo, to Rosa, who's going to give you some additional questions. Rosa? Hi, Ricardo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Super excited to have you here, especially a fellow Puerto Rican. Love the information that you have shared with us so far. Very impactful, and, and I can definitely relate with a lot of the things that you have been sharing with us. But I wanted to let you know I had the opportunity to read your book, And one particular area that I appreciated was your deeper dive into how the Latino and Hispanic is not a racial group. So as you know, this statement can sound controversial to someone who's not familiar with the Latin culture. So can you share with us the main point that you wanted to get across to your audience? Well, we're from 22 different countries. One is actually in Africa, which a lot of people don't recognize. Uh, It was colonized by the Spaniards. Uh, What is it? Equatorial uh, Guiana. And then we, you can add the U.S., the United States is the third largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. But the reality is, is that we're multiple ethnicities, right? And there's a great difference between, a, as you know, as a Puerto Rican, as a Boricua, as we say, but as a, as a Puerto Rican, there's a great difference between a Puerto Rican and a person, say, from Mexico or a, a person from Colombia or a person from Peru or any other country. So we are I always say Hispanics is only in America, right? Because no no person of Latin American descendancy will call themselves necessarily Hispanic if they're living in Latin America. They're Puerto Rican, they're Cuban, they're Dominican, they're Colombian, they're Argentinian. And the fact of the matter is some of these countries 
in Latin America have been at war together. And so, for example, you know, there's been border conflict between Costa Rica and Nicaragua, which maybe some people may know or not know. And certainly there's conflict over the soccer teams, right? <laughs> and, so, and so, and plus we have regionalistic differences in our Spanish. And so one country may speak accentually in one way and use certain words and terms that are not used in another country. And so it's not one big homogenous group that we could say, and it's not a race. There are only, depending on the anthropologist you buy into, there are only four or five races in, in the world. But there are thousands of ethnicities. And so Hispanics are composed of all of these different ethnicities. And even within that, for example, you take the country of Mexico. You know, Mexico is composed of states actually called the United States of Mexico, just like the United States of America. And Mexico, you know, someone from, say, for example, Juarez State in the north is very, very different from someone, say, from Oaxaca in the south. Just like in the United States, someone perhaps from Massachusetts is very different from someone in Alabama, right? And so we have all of these multiple ethnicities. It's incredibly rich culture, but it is not one homogenous group and it's not a race. I agree with you so much with everything you said. It was funny. I wish you could see me. I was shaking my head. Yes, the entire time. And even like you said, even you having exposure to Puerto Rico and being your family being from Puerto Rico, it's it's also very different in Puerto Rico. And it's a small island of people using different words and even their accent and some of the things that they do. So I agree 100% with you. It is so different, but people like generalizing and not doing that deeper dive. So I agree with you. Thank you so much for sharing that insight with us. That was extremely helpful. So as we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, one of the groups that we don't often talk about are the Afro-Latino. What advice can you share with our audience and the broader Latino community to ensure that all Latinos are represented and have a voice? Okay, so this is going to be a little bit deeper for some people. So before we go into this, allow me to, to buffer this a little bit here. Sure. The majority of slave trade from the transatlantic slave trade that happened for a couple hundred years the majority of those slaves did not come to the mainland American continent. They went to Brazil. Okay. They also were in the Caribbean and certain parts of Central America. But the majority of slave trade went to Brazil. I think if someone is going to understand Afro-Latino, right, and if they're going to understand the differences and experiences between countries, they have to study the Brazilian experience. But for example, I've lived eight years in the Dominican Republic, and there are a lot of very dark complexion Dominicans in the Dominican, more than in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, you have some more on the coastal regions. There's one town in Puerto Rico called Luisa that is predominantly black. And in Costa Rica, for example, there's a town called Limong on the Gulf side that is predominantly black. And then you get inland and it's not. And uh, so there is some of that. But here's the thing I think people need to understand. Latin America overall does not maintain its social relationships over racism. It's more classism. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has had this great, great struggle with racism. Latin America has this great struggle with classism. And this is a very deep conversation, Rosa, and probably not the place to get into this. But the roots of slavery, 
you can make a very, very strong case that the roots of slavery are actually in classism, not racism. And it's a very interesting conversation. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. But Latin America is much more classist than racist, which basically lies around the areas of socioeconomic status. So for many, many, many years in Latin America, you could, if you were of the same socioeconomic class, whether you're black or white, you can be together. That's more recent in the U.S. because it's more of the racist tendencies. And so it's just a study in culture, which is that depth of beliefs and values and norms and languages and symbols that are within that culture that really drive that. But it is a different experience. And I think that's what's important for your listeners to recognize is that the experience in the United States is not the same as the experience in Latin America. It's very different. I think you're spot on. And I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be doing a little bit of research and, and looking into history. But someone that was born and raised in Puerto Rico and, and moved to the States for college, I have to agree with you 100 percent. And in having the ability to travel to other countries in Latin America, a lot is around class. And, you know, I've been trying to share that with others. So I agree with you 100 percent. And, you know, recently I learned some interesting facts. 14.4 million Latinos identify as Afro-Latinos, and also one in three African-Americans are Latino. So it, it definitely, these numbers are very powerful, and there's a story there behind it. So, you know, like you said, I think it's a great conversation that we could have all day if, oh, if we goodness. could. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating, you know. I love the study of culture because it's the study of humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say to companies when they're talking about these things that culture drives people and people drive data. So if you start with data and you're just looking at people, but it's actually culture that's driving those people. And so we have to kind of look at this through different eyes, I think. In the American business world, people have kind of gotten all they really think about is organizational culture and they're not really seeing the deeper levels of it that actually create the organizational culture. I always tell people you can't policy culture into being. It doesn't happen that way because people create it. So you can do all you want on the frameworks, but it won't change the people. And you know that, you know, if you just kind of study what's going on around us. Absolutely. I agree with you. So that kind of sort of takes me to the next question. I know Earlier, you were talking about creating a movement out of this function, which I agree with you. And these are definitely very interesting times that we're navigating through, not only because of the pandemic, but everything else is going around social justice. So during this COVID-19 pandemic, we've keep hearing words such as empathy and resilience constantly. What are the main barriers to empathy you highlight in your book? And what can we do as DEI leaders to help our stakeholders overcome them? So the first main barrier to empathy is just a misunderstanding of what it is. Okay, so think about this. When most people talk about empathy, they're really defining sympathy or compassion. Sympathy is, I feel sorry for you. Compassion is, I have pain with you. Empathy is actually from a Greek term, empathos which means in passion. True empathy is I'm passionate about you. And this is fascinating when you look at it from the standpoint of social work or even government programs. If those are built on sympathy and compassion, they tend to create endemic dependence. But if they're built on true empathy, passion for people, 
and a belief, a deep belief in their talent, skills, abilities, it will naturally take us to what we call stage four, which is empowerment. Empathy is misunderstood. And so by misunderstanding it, we misapply it. And so I think that that's the first barrier, honestly, in in my particular approach to things. As it relates to resiliency, you know, we're also locked in. We're in a very moralistic, this is right, this is wrong. And when things are right and wrong, we tend to be less resilient because if it's right, it's right, (laughs) right? And one of the ways that I get people to think about this in my conferences is I'll put up a picture of this person who's lost at sea. They're on a boat and they're lost at sea. And another person is stranded on a desert island. And these two kind of have confluence. And the person who's stranded on the desert island looks out and sees the boat. And what does that person think? That's their salvation, right? But the person who's lost at sea, just floating around the ocean out in the middle of nowhere, sees land and that's their salvation. And so what makes us not resilient is we don't actually believe that there are two perspectives that can be had that are both right, depending on your perspective, depending on how you're seeing it. So in that particular example, you have two people experiencing two different things, seeing the exact same scenario coming to two very different conclusions. Where I think where people are not resilient is because they've bought into this idea of it's right or it's wrong. It's black or it's white. It's good or it's bad. But culture just is. And so what's happened with COVID and the pandemic has created cultural movements. We've become more virtual. And so just take that one area, Rosa. Okay. So now we're more virtual. People are screened out, right? It's like it's like they're zoomed out, right? So <laughs> the fatigue is real. Yeah, the fatigue is real. But now you also have how do you create a sense of belonging virtually, right? For the people within your group. How do you create that sense of belonging when people aren't together? How do you do that? Well, those are cultural dynamics and cultural challenges that we have to face and we have to solve or we'll lose our people. Right. And so I think that we have to look at this pandemic as something that is creating cultural shifts. And now, as as masters of culture, we have to learn how can we take that, those cultural shifts, first of all, understand them, and secondly, leverage them for the good of all people. If we have that type of mindset, we'll come out with much better results. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. And, you know, something that you also touch a little bit deeper when it comes to empathy in your book. So of course, everyone now has to go and get it. So they know what I'm talking about is, (laughs) you know, you were talking about also not having passion for life itself. So you can't be empathetic if you don't have that passion for life and you don't know how to be empathetic, right? right? So that is something that some people have to work at in resiliency, right? So I think that that's amazing. The specific examples and information that you shared with us, and I'll encourage people to get your book and read on the piece on empathy, because it was really impactful, at least to me. So thank you again for sharing that information with us. So Ricardo, you often talk about the cancel culture. Can you help define that for our audience and the impact that it has on organizational culture? So it's been dubbed the cancel culture, but it's not actually a culture that's composed up of an organized group of people. It's a lot of people who have a voice now because of social media and 
who their main goal is to call people out or perhaps cancel them when they commit or make what they consider to be egregious or non-forgivable cultural mistakes. And that can be multiple different things, depending on the particular viewpoint of the person who's either canceling or calling out. I just have a different viewpoint completely. I, I believe that we need to treat each other with grace. And this goes back to what Audra and I were talking about at the beginning. Everyone, whether someone on the conservative right or on the liberal left or anything in between, or someone from Nigeria or someone from Thailand or someone from Alabama, everyone got to their cultural frameworks honestly. I believe that with all my heart. I got to mine honestly. It doesn't mean we can't improve. It doesn't mean we don't seek to develop and grow. It just means we were shaped. And that shaping created us and that culture created us. And so I have a quote that I use a lot and seems to have helped a lot of people. And that is, we should be cuddling people in, not calling them out. I don't know what we gain by publicly outing people if they make a cultural mistake. We damage or destroy that person's life. We create fear in other people because right now we have a, an entire country of leaders. And this is not an overstatement. We have an entire country of leaders who aren't sure what they can say to whom, when, where, and much less how. And that's concerning. And we can do better, and we have to do better than this. And the only way we're going to do better than this is by cuddling each other in and developing people who are culturally healthy and skilled. And this is something I'm very passionate about, and I, I feel very deeply about. I think we're taking the wrong tactics and getting the wrong results because of it. Everybody's on their heels right now. People are feeling like they're walking on eggshells, and it's not healthy. And people talk about cultural sensitivity, but when my teeth are sensitive, I go to a dentist because they hurt. Sensitivity implies pain. We, we have to be finding solutions to heal. And so I just wish, and for anybody who's listening, and if you have that tendency to kind of try to make examples out of other people who make mistakes, at least from your perspective, may I ask you to give them some grace and maybe try to cuddle them in and use that as an opportunity to educate and to help grow? We can be better than this. That's where I'm coming from, Rosa. Yeah, I feel pretty strongly about this one. I think we're hurting each other. You know, you took the words out of my mouth, Grace. I think there is a big opportunity here to give people grace because, like you said, you're almost playing with people's livelihood because what people are not realizing is by calling them out and express this is a network can hear it or their job or their company and they can lose their job. They can gain a reputation, right? Because it's a media yeah. Yeah. and that could block them from having opportunity for them to work and could have a financial impact for that person as well as their family. So I agree with you, Cole Hartley. I think what we need to do is how can we educate and how can we help that person? Because no one is an expert, right? At culture and in all of these things. So how can we help someone that might be in a different stage in the journey 
of of race and and being sensitive and empathetic and resilient and all of those things that we were talking about. So if they're in a different spot in that journey, how can we help them? How can we lift them? And how can we teach them to know better? So I agree with you 100%, Ricardo. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to ask you some question and, and have a little bit of a dialogue with you. We'll love to catch up with you soon again. Like you Absolutely. said, uh, you know, these are very, very important topics that we could talk for a really long time. But in the meantime, again, I want to thank you and I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to Audra. Thank you, Rosa, so much. Thank you, Rosa. Oh my gosh. I was listening on the edge of my seat. I thought that was such a great dialogue. Thank you for that. So Ricardo, um, jumping back in. So the fifth stage of cultural mastery is empowerment. Many HR leaders are struggling with that right balance of how to bring employees back to the into the workplace in a thoughtful manner. They're considering things like fully remote versus hybrid workplaces. Can you share how critical empowerment is and how that's part of the planning process as well? Yeah. So this is a great question, especially in light of where we're at right now with COVID. And even if COVID were gone, we would still be facing this cultural shift, right? People are wanting to be more virtual. They've seen the positivity of being at home more often, right? And and being able to have more control over their schedules. And, you know, and I relate to that. I've been virtual myself since 2004. So I was way ahead of this curve. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we've been running a virtual company for many, many years. And it's kind of interesting to watch people struggle through this because we had already been through this, but by choice. And so I would just say a few things here. Number one, it's the fifth stage. So many leaders are jumping to the fifth stage and they've never been through stages one through four with their people. And if I haven't educated myself properly about my people, if I haven't improperly and meaningfully engaged with them in ways that take me to stage three and I'm passionate about them and I just admire their talents and their gifts and abilities, and if I didn't get excited about those relationships in stage four, stage five, it's not going to work. It's not going to click. It's not because here's the thing. If you look at it in stage three, I had, I had empathy, which created that passion for those people, right? I believe in them. I believe deeply in them. I'm passionate about them, which took me to stage four, which is excitement. And by the way, stage four is the key to inclusivity. Only when I am excited about the relationship with you or with that cultural group will I want to include you in the decision-making process or the creative process. That's just natural. So when I get to stage five and empowerment and I start thinking about, okay, here's the thing. I have children. And, you know, for people who have children or, you, you know, you, you don't treat all of your children in the exact same way to get the same result. It just doesn't work that way, right? People respond to different stimuli. And so empowerment is about allocation of resources, but it's also about understanding who needs which resources to be able to achieve mo- the maximum impact that they can have. And so the only way I can know how to properly empower people is Number one, I'm educated about them. I know those people. I know them deeply. We've done a test with this, Audra, and I will tell you, very few leaders actually know their people. Mm. And so if I don't really know my people, I've never really engaged with them. I'm not super, super passionate about them. I'm not excited about them. How am I going to know how to empower them? Because there are people, right? And we learned this in our transference to virtuality many years ago. 
there were people who were working with us who could be fully remote, didn't need any hybrid, didn't need a, a monthly coffee with me, like person. I, <laughs> I give an example. This is crazy. This is going to blow you away. It was five years in before I met Noenia, who is our director of training. I didn't meet her personally for five years, and she was the director of training on my company. Wow. That's how virtual we were able to become. And she just fit that. You know, there was a way to empower her that she could just do her thing, right? And she was great at it. And so here's, I think, the real challenge for leaders. If you think you can do the same exact thing for all people, you're going to miss this. You have to know your people well enough to know how to empower those individuals. Some people will need the hybrid. Some people are capable of being fully remote, don't need hybrid. And frankly, some people probably need to be in office. And so that is an individual decision, not a macro corporate decision that we're going to do the same thing. This is the difference between fairness and equity. Fairness is doing the same thing for everyone. Well, not everybody needs the same thing. Equity is providing the resources for everyone in a way so everyone can thrive. You've seen the mem, I'm sure, Audra, of the three people watching a ball game and there's a fence in front of them and one's a real little kid and the other one's kind of a medium-sized kid and then the one's an adult. Have you seen that? I have, yep. Equality, yeah. equity, and justice. And so the little kid needs two boxes to be able to see the game, <laughs> right? And, and the, the, the mid-sized kid needs, needs one box and the adult doesn't need any boxes. There are different people in our organizations who need different levels of empowerment to achieve the same exact thing. Empowerment is about resourcing people. That's what it's about. And I'll say one more thing about empowerment. Only leaders who are empowering will liberate people to do their thing. Wow. No one who's empowering will ever want to hold power over other people, ever. Mm -hmm. So most leaders are not naturally empowering. And I'm afraid we're going to try to policy our way into this, and we're going to fail at it. Because we don't know our people well enough as leaders. We're not developed and skilled in this area. And I think it'd be instructive for leaders who are listening to this to get a real understanding of what empowerment means. Because I think my experience with most leaders is not only are they not clear on what it really means, they're not prepared to implement what it means. Mm. Now, that was powerful. That was a powerful way of putting that. I... I hope that people realize empowerment is also inclusive leadership. You know, a lot of the same principles, the transparency, the respectfulness, the getting multiple views. Rosa and I, we we haven't met in person. We've only met virtually because she was she was hired during COVID. And we got the chance to meet recently in Atlanta, socially distanced, of course, at a leadership meeting. And it was amazing to see you know, so much talent in the same space and we're all on the same team. So I'm so thankful for my team, you know, and, and that empowerment thing means the world to me, Ricardo, because if my people are empowered, then I'm empowered to do my job. And I don't have to worry about looking back to worry about what they're doing on their jobs. I mean, it just makes your work a lot easier, you know, I mean, and by the way, anytime you can hire a Puerto Rican, do so. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree with that statement, Ricardo. Thank you. Especially. 
Oh my goodness. What did you say? Uh, ¿Cómo se dice? Claro que sí. Claro, sí, que, claro sí. que sí. Well, you, claro might que sí. you may want to claro think that sí. one through a little bit. <laughs> por supuesto, por supuesto. Por supuesto. Okay. You know, Andra, if I could put that together a little bit more, what you're saying is absolutely correct. So think about it like this. This is like in our world of cultural mastery. Only stage four leaders are naturally inclusive because you have to be excited about your people to want to include them in making decisions and wanting to include them in the creative process. I mean, why would I want someone at the table, you know, to say the proverbial way, why would I want somebody at the table if I'm not excited about them being there? Yes. Right? So for it yes. to be natural, for it to be just like, I want this. And it's not like DEI is telling me I have to do this, <laughs> right? But I want them there. I have to be excited about them right? Stage four. Stage five is the key. It's the absolute key. Empowerment is the key to social justice. We would not have one issue of social justice in mm. our country, in our world, if we had empowering leaders. If you want to measure how empowering leaders are, measure social justice. It's They go hand in hand. They do. They do. They go hand in hand. That's amazing. Rosa, do you want to tag in on this? Uh, this is, I know this is a topic that's, that's passionate to your heart about the empowerment piece. Absolutely. You know, I think what's important and what I always try to tell people and spread the word is you have to give a platform to others and, and help them have a voice. Because right now we are privileged to have this platform that we're having today, even having this conversation here. So how do we give people a voice, everyone to have a voice? How do we share that platform with them? That's one of my missions. And those are some of the things that I strive through every single day. How do we pay it forward, especially in during these times of social justice? How do we create awareness? How do we teach? How do we learn? I'm still learning, but I'm also make sure that I'm still teaching. You know, most recently we hosted a conversation on food justice and people are unaware of some of those things. So how do we continue to do that? So no, I agree, Ricardo, spot on. You know, Rosa, just take that subject of food justice, which for some people they hear that and they go, oh, right. <laughs> but, but think about it. The highest rate of obesity in the world is in Mexico. Okay. I've worked with a lot of companies in the manufacturing and construction spaces. And many of those companies were employing 80, 90% Hispanic workforce, most of it Mexican and South and Central American. And I would ask them the ownership and the leadership of those companies, the most simple questions about Mexicans, right? Like who's the president of Mexico? <laughs> okay. Or what do you call the Mexican national soccer team? <laughs> you know, they didn't know anything. They had zero understanding, I mean, zero education about the people they were employing, right? But take that food justice. If I know that the Mexican population has the highest rate of obesity in the world, okay, and I'm hiring Mexican people, I used to counsel companies to bring in a nutritionist once a month to speak with the, the workers and ask the workers to bring in their families to listen to the nutritionist. And we started to see families turned around because of their food diet. That's amazing. And they're simple things. And you know, how do you endear yourself to people? By caring about them, by knowing enough about them to know what their needs are. So I, I'm, I'm with you 100% on this, Rosa. I think people maybe are missing unbelievable amounts of opportunities with their workers and with their clients just by not having this basic 
levels of education. 100%. What a great conversation. I know. I just, I, like I said, we could be here all day. Yeah. It's like great when you get great people together. It's always a nice time to have that connection. So thank you for that. So Ricardo, you know, known each other for a little bit and I have just the utmost deepest respect for your work and everything you're doing to educate. And I learn something every time I talk with you. As people become more educated on culture, do you think we'll ever see the day when DEI leaders like myself and Rosa won't have to exist? We can live and work harmoniously without microaggressions? Only if we have a massive commitment on the part of leaders to become culturally healthy and skilled. Mm. And we're not there. I talk with leaders all the time about going through serious cultural mastery training. Well, I don't have the time. But they want the Band-Aids, right? It's almost like many of them want this to go away, but it won't, (laughs) right? So the answer is only if we can get a great number of leaders in what I call the six pillars of a community. So if you look at any given community, there are six pillars of leadership. One is business. One is education, one is nonprofit, one is government, one is law enforcement, which I know is government, but it's kind of a separate entity, and the other one's ministry. If we could get a large number of people within any given community in those six pillars of leadership, we could literally transform the culture of a community, an entire community, within a year or two. It's getting these leaders to make these commitments and to put the time and the effort into it that needs to be put to be able to really see real transformation of the cultural mindset and skill set. So I'm still hopeful, Audra. Mm-hmm. I hope we see that day. I hope we see that day. But it's only going to happen if we get large numbers of leaders who will commit to doing the real work that's necessary to see really a transformation of the cultural mindset and skill set. And just to be clear on that, mindset is how we view each other. And skill set is how we treat each other. And those things have to be healed. If we don't heal those things, we're going to continue to experience all of these things that we're experiencing. And perpetuate the trauma, right? We're going to keep sure. the Absolutely. trauma that people are experiencing, you know, over and over from these microaggressions. I think that's the key point as well. So, Ricardo, I know we are coming to an end of this wonderful conversation. I don't want to let you go, but I do have one last question. I know that family is so valuable to you, as it is to most of us. What do you want your legacy to be that your family remembers the most? You know, I've had like two different lives. I have two older children who are in their 30s, and I have a young daughter who's 14, and there's 20 years between my youngest and my oldest daughter. And the first two came out of a family of divorce, and the second one is very unified, very, very healthy family. It's two very different experiences. I have a son who lives in, uh, his name's Gabriel, who lives in uh, Denver, Colorado, who's a musician. And About a year or so ago, I said to my son, you know, because I wasn't open to his kind of music, (laughs) I'm just being honest here, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't really want to educate myself about the things that matter to him. And I said to my son, I said, "Um, can you tell me your three favorite guitarists? Because he's a professional guitarist. He said, you don't want to listen to him. I said, Gabe, I just want to hear him. No judgment, no anything. Honestly, Audra, I've changed. You know, between that 20-year gap, There were a lot of things that happened in my life to change me, to make me a better person, to make me a much more thoughtful individual. 
So the first thing I would say is I'd like my two older children to know me, who I am now, mm. right? I was in the ministry for 10 years and kind of cons- pretty conservative and I think way too black and white on some things, right? And so I'm just being honest. And I had to grow. I had to develop. And of course, I came out of this dysfunctional home where there was a lot of abuse. And so I think for me, part of my legacy is for my older children that they would be able to see their father in a different light than the divorce home that they came out of. I think that that would be one thing that'd be meaningful to me. And by the way, my son said to me, I can't believe you're doing this. I mean, I actually did the six, I, I started trying to do the six stages with my son. And by the way, I think that there are a whole lot of parents who need to go through the six stages of cultural mastery with their children Yeah, who've lost their kids. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that just excites the, the daylight out of me. My 14-year-old, my daughter, who's just brilliant, and so are the other two. They're, both, they're all brilliant. But my youngest daughter always says to me, you need to leave me that company without selling it, Dad, because I want to run it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that's part of legacy. She loves the work that I'm doing. And she's right there all the time. She's giving me advice. She watches Shark Tank with me and all these good things. And you know, so I think for me, it's just that did their dad leave a better world than when I came into it? Was I able myself to overcome maybe some of the the challenges and disadvantages I had growing up that, you know, by all accounts, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but there was a better path for me. And so I just want my kids to see that and to know that person. That's all I want. All right. Well, gracias. Thank you so much, Ricardo. You brought some compelling insights. And I want to give us a chance where we close out to tell the listeners how they can get your book and how they, more importantly, how they can get your training. I think if they just go to culturalmastery.com, I mean, they can go to bilingualamerica.com as well. There's a book. By the way, they can just request the book for free. If they want the ebook, it's the full book. It's the newest revised version of it. And all they got to do is just click on a button and they can request it and they'll get it sent to them. So culturalmastery.com, I would say probably would be the best for this. And I do have a new book coming out. It's called To Belong or Not to Belong. And the subtitle is Real Talk on Creating Cultures Where People Long to Be. And I'm very, very excited about that book. I think it's going to be amazing for people to read it. I've been told it's my best yet. So we'll see. (laughs) So... Uh, I'm very excited about it. Well, we cannot wait to get that, Ricardo. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. All right. So you guys heard that, culturalmastery.com, to get Ricardo's book, Six Stages of Cultural Mastery. Um, Thank you, Rosa, from our ready crew. Gracias, (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Gracias, Ricardo. Ha sido un placer. Gracias por todo. Igualmente, igualmente. Te lo aprecio mucho, Rosa. Igual. And also want to give a thank you to our listeners globally. We really appreciate your support. Make sure that you guys know that in the words of late Kofi Annan, we may have different religions, different languages, different color skin, but we all belong to one human race. Remember, when we celebrate diversity and inclusion, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word and tag our hashtag Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. Real diversity happens when we're actively engaged and working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in your world, workplace, and community. 